Hello, and welcome to Primary Care Anywhere, a resident-led podcast from the University of Utah Internal Medicine Program in Salt Lake City, Utah. My name is Kim, and I'm an intern here in our program. I will be your guide today as we discuss a topic that we spend so little time learning about in medical school and residency, but a topic that is related to a super prevalent disease that we encounter regularly in our practice, obesity. Today, we will be discussing pharmacologic therapies for obesity. Let's start by framing our discussion with a case. Your patient, Mr. M, is a 47-year-old male with past medical history of class 3 obesity and a BMI of 41, severe osteoarthritis of the right knee, hyperlipidemia, and obstructive sleep apnea. He presents to his primary care provider requesting help with weight loss. He recently met with an orthopedic surgeon regarding his right knee pain and was recommended for a total knee arthroplasty. However, the surgeon stated that his BMI had to be below 40 before he could get the procedure. He has already tried for two months to lose weight through a structured diet program, he uses Weight Watchers, and increasing his exercise by swimming for one hour three times per week. He has only been able to lose 10 pounds and needs to lose 10 more pounds prior to surgery. So last episode, we discussed dietary interventions for weight loss. And as we learned, lifestyle interventions can be effective but they require strict adherence that can be difficult to maintain. Additionally, desired weight loss is often difficult to achieve due to several metabolic and psychological factors that are at play. When lifestyle interventions are inadequate to achieve long-term weight loss goals, medications can serve as an adjunct. So this week, we will continue to build our toolbox by discussing the role of pharmacologic therapies for obesity. We've got four segments for you today, From current residents, John, Austin, Gregory, and Alex. Today, they'll be diving into meds associated with weight gain, when to use medications to treat obesity, what meds to use to treat obesity, and finally, we'll end with bariatric surgery. Let's hear it. Take it away, residents. One important way that clinicians can help patients tackle weight gain is by reviewing their medications. My name is John Michael Sanchez, MD-PhD candidate at the University of Utah, and in this segment I'll be talking about medications commonly associated with weight gain, as well as what to do when patients gain weight on a particular medication. So right off the bat, there are a wide variety of medications with weight gain as a side effect. A full list of these medications can be found in our show notes but I'll be focusing on three of the most common clinical scenarios where you're likely to run into medication-induced weight gain. Let's start with diabetes. Multiple classes of diabetes medication have been shown to increase weight. Insulin and insulin secretagogues like sulfonylureas and meglitinides have been shown to increase weight by as much as 10 kilograms in the first six months after use due to the anabolic effects of insulin itself, as well as the hypoglycemic effects of insulin that can make it tricky to balance an exercise program with some of these medications. Glitazones can also cause increases in weight, up to 4 kilograms in the first six months after use, since a pathway targeted by glitazones also increases adipogenesis. So if a diabetic patient on these medications presents with weight gain, you have a couple of strategies you can use. One strategy is to add a medication that promotes weight loss. These include medications like metformin, pramlantide, glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists, and sodium glucose cotransporter 2 inhibitors. Another strategy is to replace a medication, either with a weight loss promoting agent or with a weight neutral agent, like dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors. 
And yet another strategy is to down-titrate the dose of the offending medication, with the goal of maintaining glycemic control while minimizing weight gain. Another clinical scenario where you might run into medication-induced weight gain is hypertension. The major offenders here are certain beta blockers like metoprolol and propranolol that have negative effects on glucose and lipid metabolism and can increase weight by 0.5 to 3.5 kilograms in the first year after starting these medications. To prevent or manage beta blocker-induced weight gain, you can avoid beta blockers altogether by using weight-neutral agents like ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, or calcium channel blockers. Or if you need to use a beta blocker, choosing a beta blocker with vasodilatory effects like carvedilol or nabivolol that are less associated with weight gain. Finally, the last clinical scenario I'll be covering associated with medication-induced weight gain is depression. Almost all antidepressants have some sort of risk in increasing weight. Among SSRIs, citalopram has the highest risk of weight gain. Among tricyclic antidepressants, amitriptyline has the highest risk of weight gain. But among all antidepressants, mirtazapine has the highest risk of weight gain, associated with an average weight gain of about 1.5 kilograms. In terms of alternative agents, the only antidepressant that has been consistently shown to decrease weight is bupropion. But antidepressant-induced weight gain also brings up the importance of shared decision-making, which is relevant to all cases of medication-induced weight gain. These kinds of conversations should include the amount of weight a patient can expect to gain on a particular medication, as well as the expected duration of therapy. To recap, common drugs used to treat diabetes, hypertension, and depression are associated with weight gain. Other clinical scenarios where you should be on the lookout for medication-induced weight gain include inflammatory disease, epilepsy, the use of antipsychotics, and the use of contraception. Strategies to manage medication-induced weight gain include adjusting the dose or using alternatives that are weight-neutral or weight-loss-promoting. But the most important takeaway here is to talk to your patients about their medication options and the extent of weight gain associated with those options to make sure that their medication regimen is in line with their weight goals. Hey, this is Austin Poth, one of the internal medicine interns here at the University of Utah. Today, I'm coming to talk to you about uh, medications and when they should be used to help with managing weight loss. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we had a show that talked about dietary interventions to help with weight loss. And this, this show kind of helps go a bit beyond that to help determine what is the next step for people that are unable to achieve uh, the desired weight loss with uh, behavioral modifications alone. Now, most of this information can be found uh, off of the American Diabetes Association website. This is all part of their guidelines of what they recommend to help with weight loss. And part of their recommendations depend on how they categorize the patient's risk, um, which incorporates things such as their BMI as well as any comorbid conditions. Now, patients who have a BMI between 25 to 29.9 without any risk factors for CVD, such as uh, diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, et cetera, uh, those people are classified as being low risk. There is not much to do for them other than continue with behavioral modification, continue with dietary changes, continue with exercise. People in that BMI range of the 25 to 29.9 who do have comorbid factors such as diabetes and hypertension, they start to classify more as moderate risk and you get a bit more worried about them. These are the patients who you are continuing to counsel on dietary changes, physical activity, but you also want to start to think about pharmacologic therapy for these people. Now, 
Patients who are higher risk would include those with a BMI greater than 30, especially those between the 35 to 40 range. Um, regardless of any comorbid conditions, at this point, you want very aggressive therapy because these patients are high risk for any cardiovascular disease down the line. Uh, aggressive therapy, including like a comprehensive behavioral intervention. You want to think about pharmacologic therapy. You also consider things such as bariatric surgery at this point. Now, in terms of what you would do to initially treat these people, uh, again, most of it for people in general, you want to start with diet, exercise, any behavioral modifications. When you start to qualify for uh, pharmacologic therapies, and that again would be people in the 25 to 29.9 BMI with comorbid conditions or patients greater than 30 with their BMI, uh, then you start to think about using drug therapies. And drug therapies have uh, quite a bit of evidence behind them, but they're not used by themselves. They're pretty much always used in conjunction with lifestyle modifications as well. Part of this is because the data that we have shows uh, people who attempt to lose weight with just diet and exercise alone can roughly see about a 5 to 7% decrease in their weight, um, but it can be very difficult to maintain unless they're still completely motivated, have a lot of support. There's a lot of social factors that go into this. 5 to 7% is a very good number because you start to see a lot of health benefits actually at about 5% weight loss. However, if patients have a very high BMI, ideally um, for both the provider and the patient, they'd like to lose more than that. So then you have to branch out into pharmacologic therapy. Now, drug plus behavioral interventions seem to show a bit higher and more sustained weight loss, somewhere between 5 to 10% and sometimes greater than 10% as well. Um, when drugs are started, you usually want to do uh, one single drug and then test it for about three months. If you do not see any significant change in weight loss, which is usually defined as about 5% at the three-month mark, then you would consider switching to another agent. Again, all during this time, you would have them exercising as they're able to. You would have them continuing to work on their diet and you would have them continue to work on those behavioral modifications that were set forth at the initial visit. Now, the last thing to kind of discuss is what to do with patients who have been trying to lose weight but just haven't lost as much as they were hoping to. Uh, this would qualify if the patient has been trying to lose weight but has not met the 5% mark at about three months. If this is the case, then it's going to be some shared decision-making between the provider and the patient about what they want to proceed with. Some patients will want to proceed with pharmacologic therapy and some won't. Um, so I would encourage uh, people who have patients in this range, just kind of talk with them, lay the options out for them about what they can do next and see what they would want to do. The first weight loss medication we'll discuss is fentramine, which physiologically is a noradrenergic amine. This medication should be started at 7.5 or 15 milligrams daily and increased to up to 30 milligrams daily if the patient isn't achieving clinically significant weight loss, which is defined as greater than 5% of total body weight. Notably, fentramine is associated with elevations in mean blood pressure and pulse rate. Because of its low cost, fentramine accounts for more than 80% of prescriptions for weight loss in the United States, which by far makes it the most popular weight loss medication. Fentramine is not FDA approved for long-term use. 
However, long-term use may be appropriate if the patient achieves and maintains clinically significant weight loss. Blood pressure and pulse remain normal and the patient's been informed of the agents that are actually FDA approved for long-term use. The next weight loss medication we're going to talk about is the fentramine topiramate combination in the extended release form. Now this combination is a combination of a neural stabilizer and anti-seizure medication and seems to have some additive effects. The goal of combining these drugs is to have fewer stimulant effects from the fentramine and fewer adverse cognitive effects from the topiramate and greater weight loss efficacy. The starting dose is a 3.7523 milligram combination daily with an increase to the 7.546 milligram combination after two weeks if the patient is able to tolerate it. Further escalation is only recommended for patients who have not lost 3% of their body weight at 12 weeks. Fentramine topiramate extended release has the highest probability of achieving a 5% weight loss, and the most concerning adverse effect is the teratogenicity of topiramate, so women of childbearing age should be using highly effective contraception. The third weight loss drug we're going to talk about is lorcaserin, which is a serotonin agonist which acts on a serotonin receptor involved in appetite regulation. Lorcaserin, unlike other SSRIs, doesn't significantly affect mood. For lorcaserin, the recommended dosage is 10 mg BID. This drug doesn't have the serotonin agonism in the heart, which avoids the cardiac valve disease that some patients experience after receiving the FenFen drug in the 1990s, which was quite popular for weight loss back in those days. Lorcaserin had the second lowest probability of achieving a 5% weight loss, but on the positive side, had the lowest risk of adverse events. Caution should be used in patients receiving other medications that increase serotonin, given the hypothetical risk of inducing serotonin syndrome. The next weight loss medication we will discuss is Orlistat. Orlistat blocks the absorption of 25-30% to 30 of fat calories due to inhibition of intestinal lipase. Orlistat is available over-the-counter at a low dose of 60 mg three times daily, and also is available at prescription strength at 120 mg three times daily, with the prescription strength being the preferred dose. It has the lowest probability of a 5% weight loss and the second lowest probability of adverse events, according to a 2016 meta-analysis. The main adverse events are due to the inhibition of fat absorption, which are oily stools and fecal discharge. Patients who use Orlistat should be taking fat-soluble vitamin supplements, which are vitamins A, D, E, and K. Caution should be used in patients with malabsorption or nephrolithiasis and those receiving medications that require reliable absorption. The last weight loss medication we'll examine is liraglutide, which is a glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor or GLP-1 agonist, which slows gastric emptying and reduces appetite through central nervous system actions. GLP-1 agonists and other antihyperglycemic agents have shown weight loss in some subjects up to 5.5 to 8 kilograms. This drug was approved by the FDA in 2014 at a higher dose of 3.0 milligrams for treatment of obesity without diabetes. In a 2016 network meta-analysis, liraglutide had the second highest probability of resulting in a 5% weight loss and the highest risk of adverse effects. Notably, liraglutide is also significantly more expensive than other oral anti-obesity agents. Bariatric surgery is an increasingly used method for treating morbid obesity in patients, with up to 250,000 patients in the U.S. and Canada receiving the surgery in the year of 2018. 
Now, bariatric surgery at first may not seem to be an appealing option. It's an invasive procedure that is associated with complications, including long-term issues with malabsorption and malnutrition. However, bariatric surgery is very effective. Data has been coming in over the past several decades on the short-term and long-term effects of bariatric surgery, and in general, it has been shown to have a sustained weight loss effect on patients who undergo the procedure. In general, people will experience roughly 20 to 35% weight loss after the surgery over two years following the procedure and will on average sustain a weight loss of about 10 to 15% 10 years after the procedure, although the data on long-term outcomes is still coming in slowly over time as more and more patients undergo the surgery. In addition, bariatric surgery has some remarkable effects on the complications that diabetics experience. For example, bariatric surgery is associated with increased reduction of diabetes development and also with improvement in glycemic control. It is also associated with improvement in other diabetic complications such as hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and there have been some studies showing improved quality of life and even reduced mortality following bariatric surgery. One thing to note, as I have already mentioned, is that a lot of this data is not necessarily longitudinal, and so keep an eye on future bariatric surgery research to get a better picture of what tenure outcomes might look like in your patient. Now, who gets bariatric surgery? Generally speaking, the main cutoff is a BMI of 40. Anybody who has a BMI of 40 is a candidate for bariatric surgery, but there are ways to get the surgery with a BMI below 40. The main way that somebody with BMI less than 40 would be a candidate is if they have a major obesity-related complication, such as type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, hypertension, um, fatty liver disease, etc., etc. These patients can typically qualify for surgery with BMI as low as 35, and some have argued that somebody with BMI as low as 30 should qualify if they have severe complications, such as uncontrollable diabetes, but this is controversial. Furthermore, age usually plays a role, with people over 65 requiring a little bit more of severe disease to qualify, and pediatric patients requiring a lot more family support and much more specialized care to qualify. Now, let's say you have somebody who is a candidate for bariatric surgery. What is the assessment that goes into their preoperative evaluation? Major contraindications are few, but include the general risks for surgery, such as severe cardiac disease. They also include uncontrolled psychiatric disease or eating disorders. Additionally, one of the most important things that goes into bariatric surgery pre-op evals is whether or not the patient can sustain weight loss on their own. It depends on the surgeon, but most surgeons will not operate on a patient who is not able to show that they can lose weight independently of surgery um, for the reason being that they don't want to do surgery on somebody who is then going to gain all that weight back and then also has the complications of surgery. These complications depend in large part on the type of surgery, which is outside the scope of this particular segment, but in general, the main issue following bariatric surgery is malabsorption of various nutrients and micronutrients, including both fat and water-soluble vitamins, as well as iron. Um, patients need to be able to show that they will be able to follow up with nutritional recommendations following surgery, thus the emphasis on psychosocial support and compliance. Um, that concludes this section of the podcast, and I will turn you back over to your hosts. Wow, that was a lot of great information. Thanks, friends. Now let's apply some of what we learned to our opening case. 
As a reminder, our patient, Mr. M, is a 47-year-old male with a BMI of 41, severe osteoarthritis of his right knee, hyperlipidemia, and sleep apnea. He presents to his PCP requesting help with weight loss. He recently met with an orthopedic surgeon for his knee pain and was recommended for total knee arthroplasty, but the surgeon said that with his current BMI, he couldn't get the procedure. He has tried for two months to lose weight through a structured diet program and by increasing his exercise, but has been unsuccessful at maintaining any of his weight loss. So you start by reviewing his home medications. He doesn't appear to be on any medications that are associated with weight gain. So what more can you do for Mr. M? Given his BMI of 41, he has that increased cardiovascular risk and should be treated aggressively. In conjunction with continued lifestyle modifications, you discuss starting a pharmacologic agent for weight loss with the patient. After discussing all of the options, Mr. M decides he would like to try Orlistat. You discuss the side effects of the medication and plan to follow up with Mr. M in three months. During your follow-up visit, Mr. M states that he has lost 16 pounds since last visit, which is about 7% of his goal weight loss. He is also pleased to report that his knees feel a whole lot better, and he's actually been able to be more active. He's grateful for your suggestion and would like to continue an Orlistat for the time being. He is hopeful the orthopedic surgeons will finally consider him from surgery, and he'll be on his way to a more active lifestyle. So what are the main takeaways from today? 1. There are multiple medications that can cause weight gain. Many of those medications are diabetes-related, antihypertensives, and antidepressant meds. So always review a patient's medication list to see if there's anything that could be contributing to their weight gain. Two, there are multiple medications on the market with good evidence for weight loss, so don't be afraid to use them. Three, people who attempt to lose weight with lifestyle interventions can see a 5-7% to decrease in weight. However, that weight loss is often difficult to maintain. However, when pharmacologic therapies are used in conjunction with behavioral interventions, we typically see a higher and more sustained weight loss of 5 to 10%. Finally, bariatric surgery is very effective. It often leads to sustained weight loss effect of 20 to 35% in two years after surgery, in addition to improvement in patients' diabetes, hypertension, and quality of life. So that's all we got for today, folks. Thanks for listening to Primary Care Anywhere. Thank you.